1: Welcome to Naked Reflections, brought to you from the Wolf Institute. I'm Ed Kessler, and each week I'll be taking an in depth look at the stories reported by our friends over at the Naked Scientists. What does the latest scientific stuff mean for the rest of us? Stay with us and find out. Hello, and welcome to Naked Reflections. A taste for gambling seems to be as ancient as human consciousness. I almost expect some biblical scholar to discover a long-lost chapter of Genesis in which Adam and Eve have a bet on which creature will tempt them to eat the apple. And for those with an appetite for ancient Greece, you might want to turn to Hermes for help, the Greek god associated with gambling. Two and a half billion pounds was wagered on the last Soccer World Cup in the UK alone, and there are reckoned to be 400,000 problem gamblers in this country, and that could be an underestimate. Certainly, our high streets are littered with, some might say, slightly threatening gaming outlets where once there were shops. So, should we regard gambling as a potentially serious addiction or just a bit of fun? Perhaps it's both. Speaking on the Naked Scientist show, Are You Addicted?, Amy Milton referred listeners to the guidance of the Diagnostic Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders.
2: The new version, which came out in May, now classifies gambling along with drugs of abuse in a single category of addiction. So this is really quite a new field um, and there's some really good work being done um, actually here in Cambridge, but also in the States as well. Looking at the underlying neurobiological mechanisms of pathological gambling. And the compulsive aspects of the disorders seem to be quite conserved. So that sort of compulsive nature of gambling is thought to rely on the same sort of circuitry as the compulsive nature of drug seeking and drug taking behaviour.
1: Gambling and betting is our subject this week and joining me to discuss it is Professor Mark Griffiths of Nottingham Trent University. Mark has conducted extensive research into many types of human addiction and has a particular interest in gambling and gaming. With him is Ben Ryan, former head of research at Theos, a religion and belief think tank, and now Church of England lead on matters to do with gambling, amongst other things. He is currently working with the government on a review of gambling policy, so I think the odds are high that you'll enjoy this podcast. Mark When gambling or betting becomes problematic, is it an addiction like
3: others or is it distinctive? Oh, it's certainly an addiction, Ed. I mean, obviously, it all depends on how you define addiction in the first place. And I know for 35 years now, I've studied lots of different addictions, almost any addiction that doesn't involve the ingestion of a psychoactive substance. And when it comes to gambling, to me, somebody who is genuinely addicted to gambling in a nutshell is that gambling becomes the most important thing in their life. They use it as a way of modifying their mood either to get buzzed up higher, aroused or to do the exact opposite to tranquilize to numb to escape to, to relax over time they build up what we call tolerance needing more and more of gambling to get those same initial mood modifying experiences they get withdrawal symptoms if they can't engage in gambling probably most importantly is that gambling conflicts with everything else in their life it compromises their relationships it compromises their education or occupation depending on what age you are and also People experience what I call intra conflict, conflict within themselves. They know that they're gambling too much. They know they should probably try and cut down and stop, but they feel unable to do so and they experience a subjective loss of control. And then finally, we have what we have called relapse. So if, if a gambler who's genuinely addicted has managed to give up gambling for two days, two weeks, two months, or even two years, when they start gambling again, they'll go straight back into the addictive cycles they were in before. What makes that different from other forms of addiction? One of the the key kind of risk factors for, for gambling addiction is what we call chasing losses. When people start to lose their money, they will often double or triple the amount of money trying to win their money back. That is something that's totally unique uh, to gambling, doesn't occur in any, any other addictions. So, you know, the other thing about behavioural addictions, gambling, like shopping addiction, are probably two of the most destructive addictions because it actually involves a financial consequence as well if you spend 10 hours playing video games or 10 hours working or 10 hours engaging sex or 10 hours on the internet you don't lose vast amounts of money or at least you know people traditionally don't of course now even in things like video gaming you know people are now monetizing those events so gambling for me is one of the more destructive behavior addictions because if you gamble for 10 hours most people are going to be losing and that actually results in a you know a huge financial consequence as well
1: Ben, there was a change, wasn't there, in 2005 with the Gambling Act. What was the church's response at the time and where do you sit on it now? I think in many ways we were quite
2: prescient. The churches pushed back quite hard against what was seen, I think accurately, as as a very liberalising agenda on, on gambling, making the UK gambling market one of the more permissive regulated gambling markets in the world. Our concerns about new gambling machines, unlimited stakes, um, that's something which has shown to be pretty prescient in terms of a concern. Um, Our concern about advertising, I don't think we could have begun to imagine how ubiquitous gambling advertising could have been, including that which is kind of more or less targeted at children. I don't think there's any particular desire to turn the clock back entirely. I think trying to put that concern for the vulnerable at the heart of how we look at gambling, not just seeing it as a cash cow um, for the Treasury, is something which we've remained pretty constant on. We are often portrayed as prohibitionists. And I, I don't think that's, that's fair. I don't think that's true. But we do want to see a more responsible and responsive gambling industry, which is more mindful of exactly some of those harms which Mark has just
1: laid out. And so what's actually changed since 2005? Has the situation got worse?
2: The whole context has dramatic changed. It's become a complete cliche to say that it was an analogue act for a digital age. But nobody nobody foresaw the enormous growth of how the internet would change gambling. Or rather, a few people did foresee it but weren't listened to at the time, if we're being really fair. But by and large, nobody foresaw the enormous scale and the enormous changes in the industry which the internet would open up. You know, The idea that somebody could be sat on their bed in their own room with eight different gambling apps gambling all night long, off a credit card. Some of that has since been changed. But that scenario just didn't occur to people when we were drawing up the stuff in two thousand and four, two thousand and five. And and that's now become a kind of normal part of things. The way in which advertising has changed is extraordinary. You know, in two thousand and five I think it was ninety thousand advertising slots given over to gambling. It's now millions.
1: So Mark, it's down to the transformation in social media and technology. Is is that fair? Uh,
3: Yeah, I echo a lot of what Ben says. or I actually disagree. I wrote my first paper on internet gambling back in 1996. If you actually go and read that paper, almost everything in that paper has come to fruition. I mean, it's not that I had a magic crystal ball, but I was actually working on internet addiction at the time. And I said that gambling and the sex industries are basically the two industries that kind of monetize new technologies and turn it to their advantage. When I first started back in 1987, you know, things like the Internet, social media, these things we hadn't even heard of. And so what has happened, of course, is that what we call the structure and situational characteristics of gambling have totally changed. And of course, now when I hear, you know, people are up in arms because there's a new bookmakers opening in the high street, for me, you've got to remember anyone with a smartphone is walking around with a bookmakers in their back pocket, you know, or, a, you know, a casino in their purse, because that has fundamentally changed. Now, one of the things I don't think we have to be is alarmist about this, because one of the things that we can do now is actually harness that technology to actually protect gamblers. I mean, a lot of the work that I do now is trying to evaluate some of the technological innovations, I feel like we're almost being forced By gambling regulators to bring in to actually try and help people. And I think the good news, I mean, Ben may disagree with me here, but if you look at the problem gambling prevalence rate over the last 20 years, it's been pretty much static at around about a half a percent. We did have a blip in 2011 when it went up to about 0.9%. A lot of people attributed that to the increase in advertising, but. What we've seen over this last decade is that we've still got a problem gambling prevalence rate of around about half a percent, which still translates to well over half a million people, not trying to minimise the problem at all. But what we have seen is this massive increase in advertising. But what we haven't seen is a massive increase in problem gambling. What we have seen is, if you like, displacement and shifts in the way that people are gambling now. So, for instance, We've now got the rise of sports betting and in-play betting. I mean, this was something that just really wasn't around, you know, 10 years ago. And over the last three or four years, this has become a very prevalent type of gambling. And it's one of those that's, you know, more associated with problem gambling. And that's where I would like to see, you know, targeted prevention and regulators get in is, is trying to protect those people who are doing things that they did 10 years ago, where you would basically bet once a week on who was going to win in a football match. Now, of course, you've got 60 or 70 markets within one match for the whole 90 minutes. And then you get match after match after match, which means if you're an in play sports betty, you can sometimes be gambling eight hours a day on a Saturday or a Sunday. But I'm a believer that we can use that technology to actually help prevent and stop problem gambling happening in the first place.
2: We can very quickly get into the weeds here. I mean, I am quite sceptical of that measure for all sorts of reasons. Um, some of the things which it measures, some of what it doesn't measure. I'm also skeptical about whether that really captures the full extent of gambling related harms. So that might tell you that this individual has a particular addiction, but it won't tell you about the associated harms that their children don't have any money and can't go to school, can't go on a school trip, or it won't tell you about the fact their mortgage payment wasn't covered. There are all sorts of societal factors not captured in that problem gambling rate. Betting shops are a classic example. Um, the clustering of betting shops is enormously unpopular uh, with the general public for all sorts of reasons, not least being you know the, the rise of antisocial behaviour, the what it does for the local area. Um, but also simply the reason for it is it provides a lot more machines for people who do have a problem where they can go from shop to shop. And that wouldn't be captured in that sort of statistic. So we can go into the woods on what your preferred statistic for harm is. Um, I think in some ways that that becomes a distraction.
1: Okay, well, let's not get hung up on the exact numbers. But nevertheless, 500,000 people is a lot of people who are struggling with this addiction. Um, and I suppose the question I have is, isn't it part of the human condition I mean, don't we all want to have a, a little flutter? Shouldn't we avoid trying to suppress it? Where would you go with that, Mark?
3: Well, obviously, I'm not anti-gambling in the slightest. I'm very pro-responsible gambling. I'm anti-adolescent gambling. We know that um, there, are, there are certain risk factors. And obviously, the younger that you are, the more likely you are to develop a gambling problem. You actually fall into what I think is a mistake there. You actually turn what I said, 500,000, and turn that into addicts. I actually talked about 500,000 problem gamblers. Now, I can tell you now that while all gambling addicts are problem gamblers, not all problem gamblers are gambling addicts. This is on a continuum, and I agree with Ben entirely, is that obviously when we do assess problem gambling in this country and elsewhere, what we don't assess is the impact it has on other people. So those 500,000 problem gamblers will be affecting at least four or five other people around, and that's why it is a major societal problem. And again, it all comes down to how we define things, what screens we use. I do think that even if we banned gambling entirely, gambling would still go on because if you like, you say it is a human condition. People liked it if you like to get something for nothing or try and wager their skill against something else. And that's why, you know, prohibition will never work because all it would do is drive things underground. If we ban gambling, you know, and we say, well, we don't have gambling anymore. That means we don't have gambling prevention services, treatment services. Actually, that would make the problem worse. You know, for me, I mean, I'd be a hypocrite. I mean, I, you know, I like the odd sports bet. I play roulette at my my local casino. I like having a gamble. But for me, I'm buying entertainment. You know, when I go into my local casino, okay, I will go in there. I'll I'll probably have a a two-course cordon bleu meal, you know, subsidized drinks, a couple of hours at the roulette table. When I leave at the end of the evening, I will have spent maybe thirty-five pound. Now that's actually cheaper than me watching Nottingham Forest lose. That's cheaper than me watching Noel Gallagher at the arena for a night's out, entertainment for a meal, to drink and have some fun with my friends. You know, if I win anything, that's a complete bonus. I, you know, I'm not gambling to win money. I like the gambling experience itself. So for me you know, I don't want to stop other people's pleasure. And we know, obviously, the vast majority of people who do gamble have no problems at all. But of course, I've spent three and a half decades studying problem gambling. And I know the destruction that it can cause at an individual level. You know, I've experienced it myself. You know, my brother ended up in prison, okay, as a result of his acquisitive crimes to fund his slot machine addiction. It's one of the reasons that I got into gambling in the first place. Everything in my room, you know, was stolen by my brother and sold to fund his slot machine addiction. I know, What it's like to live in a house where all of my family had to have locks on their bedrooms to stop my brother stealing things to fund his gambling. So when my family first found out my brother was addicted to slot machines, the first thing they said was, thank God for that. We thought it was drugs as if gambling is somehow a lesser problem than drugs. And I think, you know, going back to your very first question about addiction. When people are genuinely addicted to gambling, that is just like any other addiction in terms of the causes, the consequences and the, you know, the impact that it can have on people around you.
2: One thing I want to make absolutely abundantly clear because it often gets lost in this is that to my knowledge, no church or major campaign group is calling for a ban on gambling. The kind of portrayal as, as prohibitionist is in that sense entirely inaccurate. But I think it comes down to an idea that our opposition two particular things here is, is in opposition to the activity of gambling. As if the activity of gambling is, is a sinful one, which therefore we want to quash. Now, I would say that that's actually not quite accurate, albeit in the fact that, you know, particularly in the 19th century, you have people like Wesley and, and William Temple, who were very anti-gambling and saw gambling as an innately sinful activity and therefore want one to remove from society. That's not where the churches currently are. It, it's not the individuals engaging in gambling, which, which we're kind of condemning and working about. It's an industry which draws a disproportionate amount of its profits from addicts. And I personally don't much like the term problem gamblers, but since it's, it's the currency here, we'll use it as shorthand. Um, an industry which is based to a great extent on exploitative and dangerous products. And it's important to note on that, that different products are just much more dangerous than others. Talking about playing the football pools or the national lottery is a very different world from online slot machines. And very convoluted accumulator bets are very different from football pools. And an industry which uses so-called VIP schemes, which target serial losers and addicts and give them constant inducements to keep betting with them, that's a dangerous and reckless behaviour on the part of an industry. And that is is, is a sinful behaviour which we want to see a crackdown on rather than the individual that's involved. But I do think that's a really important distinction to draw between the activity itself and its virtual vice and the industry that profits from particular vulnerabilities and exploitation and and the regulation thereof.
3: Can I just say, Ben, I agree with you wholeheartedly there. One of the things you just raised there, which is very important, is what we call the structural characteristics of gambling. So as you said, playing a, a biweekly lottery or, is very different from playing a slot machine. So the one area that I've done a lot of work is on what we call event frequency. So for instance, I could create you a really safe slot machine. And how would I do that? Is when you come to play my slot machine, I'm only going to let you press the button once on a Wednesday night. I'll let you press it again once on a, on a Saturday night. And I guarantee... No one will ever become addicted to that slot machine. I could also create you the single most addictive lottery product. And instead of having the draw once on a Wednesday night and once on a Saturday night, I'll have the draw every two minutes. OK, now you might sound being facetious there, but of course that game is, exists. We've got Kino is in other jurisdictions around the world. And my guess is Kino at some point will come in as a form of gambling in this country where you have automated lottery draws every few minutes. So when people say to me, oh, lotteries are non-addictive, slot machines are addictive. I go, no, it's to do with the structural characteristics of that particular activity because you can manipulate the structural characteristics to turn what is a very innocuous form of gambling like lotteries into something that's actually very problematic. And that's what we've witnessed elsewhere in the world is that fast, high-action High event frequency lotteries actually do have a high association with problem gambling. And that's why slot machines, fixed odds betting terminals are often called the crack cocaine of gambling because they have lots and lots of these structural characteristics that induce people to play again and again and again. So totally agree with that, Ben. I also agree that, you know, there are certain sections of the industry who definitely prey on vulnerable people and use what I think are irresponsible practices to, to gain their income. This is Ed
1: Kessler, and my guests this week are Mark Griffiths and Ben Ryan. Our subject is gambling, and the title of this podcast, appropriate enough, is Odds On Either Way. Whatever view you might take about gambling, do you believe that the big companies, many of which are registered offshore, are sufficiently serious about tackling its potential harms? Here's a clip from the Naked Sign to show The A to Z of Addiction. Dr. Ryan Ali expresses his concerns. There are a lot of court cases now about gambling company failing to practice their duty of care there are fines imposed on them because they failed to uh, detect addictive a uh, gambler It's for the benefit of both the society and the the gambling company to detect those problematic cases. And the majority of gamblers are not really problem gamblers. So the, the profit of the company wouldn't be hugely affected by detecting problem gamblers in the early stages and keep the gambling to an acceptable level. Ben, do you engage with the Gambling Commission about safe gambling? And if so, how do you go about it?
2: We do. It's somewhat customary for people in my position to take quite an aggressive stance on the Gambling Commission and its perceived weaknesses. And I I often think that is unfair. I think they have an exceptionally difficult job and work very hard to try and engage with the voluntary sector and and with other groups, but it it isn't very easy. One of the bugbears that I think I would continue to have with with the Gambling Commission is is there is still this kind of um, a default position of always a demand that we need more research we need more evidence before we can definitively move on something. I find that problematic. I find that kind of default, we won't move unless attitude very much slows the pace of reform, um, irritates and frustrates those groups that work with survivors and, and you know, and, and victims groups, and often is, is I think, frankly, a bit abused by the industry itself, which takes advantage of this perceived lack of absolute definitive proof to mean in that measures are, are, are slowed and, and dragged down. And and that, I think, is, is a frustration that I have had. But I don't want to be overly critical because I do think that it has been improving and, and the engagement of the Commission. Um, has been good and has you know, has grown a, a few teeth. I think you know, it was good to see the commission really come out strongly and, and condemn a recent report commissioned by the Betting and Gaming Council with PwC on, on the rise of a threat of a black market, which is a frankly pretty spurious piece of research. And it, it was good to see the commission calling that out and, and slapping it down for what it was.
1: Mark, what do you think about the um, gaming industry's attempt to reduce addictive behaviour? Is it real or is it just uh, ticking a box?
3: Certainly real in terms of the the companies that I've worked with. I've been working with the industry. I do stress the word with. Uh, Some people like to change that to word for. So, for instance, you know, for the last four years, I've been working with the government monopoly operator in Norse Tipping in Norway, looking at things like, does limit setting work? Do mandatory breaks work? Does personalised messaging work? So in a nutshell, so things like, for instance, limit setting, voluntary limit setting. So these are things where gamblers can set the amount of time and money they want to spend on particular products or, or as a whole. Or, in fact, what we call global loss limits. So in, in Norway and Sweden, you can't lose more than around about €2,000 Euros a month now on their, on their sites, which to some people, that's still a huge amount of money. But, but for others, people, that would be something that's, that's affordable. In a nutshell, what we found is that limit setting works, that... Pop-up messages telling you to stop gambling don't work. We found that mandatory breaks only work up to a point and that the longer the mandatory break is, the better that is to curb people's gambling. And we've also found that what we call personalised messaging. So actually giving messages to gamblers in real time on real gambling sites while gamblers are doing actually does seem to have a, a very positive effect. I mean, one of the things that's really changed over the last 10 years is that gambling companies have basically opened up their data, allowing academics to independently analyze to what extent a lot of these responsible gambling tools actually work. And of course, you know, the massive difference is we've got these huge sample sizes of confirmed gamblers with real gamblers on real sites in real time, something that we just never had historically.
2: I'd agree with that to a point. The industry on other things has fought absolutely tooth and nail against even the kind of most moderate reform. So if you think about the two pound limit on fixed odds betting terminals, which uh, the industry told us would, would bankrupt the industry, but thousands of jobs would be lost. It would be kind of catastrophic for everyone if this happened, and that it wouldn't make any difference anyway. That was years of fighting that very moderate thing, which was well backed by evidence, um, having a statutory levy, a kind of polluter pays model, which says, well, if you're going to do this, then you should properly fund research and treatment on a statutory footing rather than a kind of voluntary levy at the moment, which, you know, some firms take fairly seriously, some don't take remotely seriously, and it's a very variable picture. This statutory levy has, has been fought against, again, tooth and nail for years, and it's great to hear from Mark that lots of companies want to work with him on designing safer products but it's hard to say that sitting in a kind of from a policy seat and you know watching the work for example which the bishop of st albans has been doing in parliament with with peers for gambling reform it's hard to say that there is a lot of sign that the industry is very committed to really embracing any of the criticisms that that have come their way and when they do come they tend to come as recently you know with concessions at the last minute when there's a government review due anyway then suddenly you begin to to get some kind of low-hanging fruit will drop off but it is a hard fight, this one, for those who are on the side of reforms and regulation. I
3: mean, can I just say something, better? I mean, obviously, most of the companies I've worked with are nothing to do with Britain. You know, I've worked with shipping in Norway, Spentish in Sweden, and Ray in Finland, lots of different Canadian operators. So I think a lot of what you've actually said is the UK situation. I'm actually talking about what I think are very innovative practices that are happening elsewhere in the world that the British operators are going to have to jump on and actually adhere to.
2: And we don't want to tar every company with the same in brush either, because I think some within the UK are, are genuinely much much better than others and, and have different approaches. But it is nonetheless noticeable that the, the sorts of research which is openly commissioned by the industry, from consultants rather than from academics, um, and is used in, in these policy documents, is used extensively, aggressively, and often to limit even the most moderate forms of reform.
1: I wonder if we could extend it beyond... The global north, if you like, because certainly in Asia and in the Far East, gambling is very much part of the culture. It's part of the religion as well. Um, what could be done to stop the potential harmful influence on me if I wanted just to to log online with a casino in Hong Kong?
2: Well, it's, it's important to note that gambling is illegal in China.
3: Gambling is not illegal in China, and I know because I've just done some consultancy with the China Sports Lottery. Anything that's called lottery is not considered gambling. In China. And what's interesting now, there are bookmakers everywhere, but they're badged as the China Lottery. And so that's how they get around the gambling legislation. If any of you have ever gone to Macau and you watch the, the North Gate there, you just see bus, and I do mean thousands and thousands of Chinese coming over in the buses to gamble from mainland China into Macau. Chinese gambling is absolutely endemic. It is part and parcel. So the, technically the gambling is illegal in China, but I can tell you now gambling is very big in China because everything is bad under a lottery.
1: I'm glad we sorted that out. I don't feel as bad as I did a moment ago, but more importantly, what can be done, not so much to help those people getting off the bus in Macau, but helping me just log on and just get caught up in this uh, morass?
2: Well, in principle, I suppose, it was nothing, but. But why would you? In in the sense that when the UK regulations are are pretty permissive, um there's not actually a huge incentive for you to go and seek out those Chinese sites. And one of the curiosities, in fact, when we talk about, say, advertising in sport, the number of Premier League football teams are actually even more in the lower leagues, sponsored by Chinese betting companies, which no one in the UK can bet on because they don't have a license to operate in this country. Um, and which may or may not be illegal to bet on even in China, Uh, it means that there is this kind of curious grey market gambling phenomenon, which British industries and British advertising and British sports clubs are are sort of a part of the ecosystem of.
3: I'll just come back on that, not to disagree. Obviously, the Premier League, we've got to realise it's a global phenomenon. You know, if you're in China, you're in Australia, you're in America, people watch the Premier League. So the fact that companies are advertising a a betting company or a a gambling company that that British people can't even gamble on, that's not really the point. It's about attracting, you know, people that can gamble there. Ed, going back to your question, for instance, if you try to log on to Norse tipping in Norway or Sweden in Swedish, you'd have to give your social security number. So what that automatically means is that you can't actually even gamble on those, those products to start with. And it also shows that you are over 18 or over the, the minimum age to gamble.
1: All bets are off because this is the end of this podcast. Thanks to my guests, Mark Griffiths and Ben Ryan. And as always, thanks to you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, and I hope you did, you might want to browse our archive of podcasts. We'll be on holiday soon, but don't worry. We will soon be sharing our biggest hits during our august break so keep an eye out for that too in the meantime i'll be back next week with a new topic and some new guests
0: thinking about your next career move in research and development then it's time to make your move to the uk